is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Uh, hello, I'm Carl Pillemer, and I'd like to welcome you to our first podcast in a series on doing translational research. Uh, over the coming months, so we're going to talk to researchers who work to create a better marriage of science and service by engaging in research that bridges the, uh, the worlds of academia and real life, and often in partnership with practitioners. And we hope you enjoy this inside look at what translational researchers do and what they see as a core of their work. And also perhaps we'll learn a bit about how they got into this business in the first place. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Carol Devine with us today, who is a professor in the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell University. She's had a very distinguished research career that's focused on choices that we make over the life course about food and eating, and how such choices are shaped by life course transitions and social roles and lived environments. And um, well, welcome to our first podcast, Carol. Thank you, Carl. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you, for our listeners, uh, if you could just tell me, you know, in general, the kind of a Cliff's Notes version of, of how you see your research program or how it's developed over the years. Another way to think about this is, is maybe what's the biggest question you feel you're trying to address in your work? So the question that really motivates me and has for a number of years is how people in their real lives manage food and eating and how the things that surround them, their social environments, their economic environments, their physical environments, shape the way they manage food and eating. And, and the group of people I'm especially interested in, um, mostly because they have very great needs, are low-wage working parents. Um, people who struggle to make ends meet and do their very best they can for their families and their children, but um, a number of things, barriers, challenges, may get in the way of them always doing the things they want to do. Um, could you tell me a little bit about a study in this area that you're currently working on? Uh, a graduate student and I are doing a study right now um, with the mothers of Head Start kids in rural upstate New York. And one of the things that she's, the graduate student, Tara, has been talking with them about is how they manage food and eating and how that fits into their daily lives, how it fits into their work lives, their family life, where they live the kinds of transportation challenges they might have. And the really neat thing about that study is that she's been able to talk with them over a period of eight months, from the day their children first went to Head Start to the day that they, you know, that that, that year's Head Start program ended in, uh, in June. So she's able to follow that process over the period of a school year and to see how things change over that time and the number of things that come up along that time that make them have to reassess or replan or re-strategize how they manage food and eating for their kids. Um, it may seem obvious, but to me as a non-expert in this area, why would we want to focus in particular around issues of lower income people? Are there, are there special risks that they face as part, uh, as part of food and eating decisions? Absolutely. And it's not just about the food and the cost of food, although um, that's a piece of it. It's that they may not have a dependable source of income, or they may have um, a second job that requires them um, to pay more for childcare, or they may not have another adult in the household to help pay the bills for the family or pay the rent. 
so that they have to um, depend on people or family members who may not be as dependable as they would like. Um, and one of the things parents will tell us, for example, is they often have to delegate feeding their child to someone else who may or may not be a family member. Maybe it's an older teen, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a, a relative. Um, but they don't always feel as comfortable with that delegation because things aren't going exactly the way they'd like them to go, even though they really depend on those people and really trust them in general with their kids. Oh, that's great. You know, I wonder if I could ask, uh, it may be a longer story, but how did you, I happened to get into this line of research, was there one particular sort of turning point or some way that you came to do it? I wouldn't say there was one turning point, but there's an event that I remember from my really... I've been in nutrition my whole career, but there's an event I recall from my early training. Um, I was working with in a maternal and child um, health clinic in, a, in Boston, and I was, counsel, I was talking to a mom who was there for prenatal counseling, and I was talking to her, and she was pregnant, and I was talking to her about, you know, what are the kinds of things you need to think about when you're eating when you're pregnant, and I was being supervised by a very, very experienced nutritionist who was sitting, you know, around the corner in the other room saying, uh, you know, and afterwards, then after the end of the interview, the nutritionist came, the, the, the experienced nutritionist, my preceptor came in and she said, but you didn't ask her if she had enough food. And it was a really wonderful learning experience for me um, because I had done everything right. And I had talked about the various things that are important in terms of nutrition and pregnancy, but you know, early on, many of us have those experiences where we think, I really want to do the right thing and I want to be helpful, but I mean, I need to pay attention to what the right questions are. And for her, that was a more critical question at that point than what I was asking. Okay. Now, now, I know that you, and I've got this as a part and parcel of this, but you're someone who's chosen to do your work um, with community agencies, um, organizations like Head Start and other real world mm -hmm. settings. And that's something we think of as kind of a hallmark of translational research. Uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how you engage with these other stakeholders in your work and what that's been like? You can't do this kind of work without them. You know, it's impossible. Uh, and, and having them as partners is a really important part of making this work go well and, getting, and, and, and helping to find people in local communities to participate. But... The thing that makes it so easy is because they care about the same things you care about. These community organizations, these local nutritionists, these local teachers, these local healthcare workers, they really care about the same things and they're eager to help do what they can to help their families, that their families um, be healthier and, and eat better. So um, it's, it's a wonderful partnership in general. And but it also means every day we have to be flexible about what's possible for them to do and what's possible for the families we're trying to reach to do as well. You can't, you're not going to be successful if you just go out and say, this is how it's going to happen. It rarely does. Um, um, and you and I exist in, in an environment where some of our colleagues, for example, can do all their research on college undergraduates and don't have any issues of recruitment or... Uh, agency relations. Are there certain challenges you've you've seen in doing this kind of work um, with real world uh, agencies and organizations? Things that crop up. I, I think it's more about being recognizing that their needs. These organizations have needs of their own to get their work done, um, to meet their goals, and you need to recognize that they have some things they need to do. And if you can help them meet their goals, that's going to make your life easier 
and, you know, make it easier for them to do that research. So I think, but getting to know them, forming long-term relationships, and it always works best when you've known them and worked with them for a while because you kind of know what to expect from each other. Oh, yeah, because I would also think that having programs that are developed in those contexts would make it easier to disseminate them afterwards because they've already been used and tested in these settings. Yeah, and one of the things we found that's wonderful about, you know, for example, just recently we've been working with Hester a lot, and they're very eager to have us come back and tell them what we found. You know, come back and tell their staff, do training for their staff or do updates for their participants or you know, those kinds of things, because they really don't, they, they that's some interest in this, and they want us to come back and say what happened. Yeah, no, I think that's so valuable, and it really gives them incentives to participate yeah. um, in the future. Well, well, let me turn to a big picture question, with the, which is, if you um, are thinking about, you know, the area in which you work, what are some of the uh, things uh, that you would like to have the general public know about the research uh, that you do. So if there are implications of all the work you've done, are there a couple of take-home points that you would like a listener to um, really attend to in terms of things you found out? So one of the things we found that we think is really important is, well, I would say there are two things. One is the importance of what else is going on in people's lives at the time. Um, we're very interested, and we've been doing a study lately in New York, um, asking people about their life events, what kinds of things are happening in their lives to make changes in the way they live, where they, where they live, who they live with, how they eat, that kind of thing. And it's really important to know those things because then you can help them adjust to um, uh, making ways to, strategies to make things healthier. And I would say the other thing that we've found that I think people don't maybe appreciate as much is the importance of routines. The importance of routines in families and routines for feeding children in particular. Routines are a way to help us all, they're shortcuts, so that we don't have to make every decision anew, you know, every day. Um, and if we have a routine and it's a healthy routine then, and we can stick to it, that's great. But a lot of times things happen in people's lives. They lose a job, the car breaks down, the kid gets sick, and the routines get thrown out the window. And that makes it much harder for, for parents or to feed themselves and to feed their kids because um, they've lost that. And some of those breaks in routine, some of those challenges happen because of events outside of their control. Um, it may be that they, one of the things that makes it most difficult for parents is if they don't know in advance um, what hours they're going to be working or what shift they're going to be working or how many shifts they're going to be working that week. Um, and so pre having predictability is really important for parents' lives in terms of keeping those routines for feeding their kids. That's just one example. Yeah, I was thinking, because we're here in the Bronfenbrenner Center, and I think of Yuri Bronfenbrenner's idea of chaos in families as being so difficult, and especially for kids, that kind of unpredictability. And you're right, if I think back on it, even in my own childhood, uh, there were other disruptions, but meals did appear on time, and that actually felt sort of reassuring. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is, it's not only reassuring, but it mean, it's, less, it's less work in a sense, because everybody knows this is when dinner's going to be on the table and this is when what kinds of things we eat on a regular basis. You know, everybody has these fallback things they make for their kids. Um, it makes life a lot easier because then parents can attend to other things. You know, parents tell us they don't like it when they have to make a decision about spending time making dinner versus spending time helping the kid with homework. 
or making sure the child gets to bed on time so that they can get up in time to go to school. And those are challenges for parents. Um, they want to do the right thing, but they don't always have the time to do everything. And so they make choice. They have to make choices sometimes. And routines makes it easier to keep those things going. And it strikes me, here's where uh, the issue of, of economics might come in, because lots of middle-class parents purchase meals or purchase expensive ready-made meals, but that's not as much of an option, I would think, for other people. It isn't, but also they have perhaps more dependable childcare or um, more predictable jobs or more flexibility in their jobs, and a lot of low-wage workers don't have any of those things. You know, their jobs aren't, their job hours aren't predictable, um, their job hours aren't flexible, and they may not have the childcare that's as dependable as they would like. So, yeah, so I feel from having read your work that it is this idea that food and eating um, occur in these broader social contexts that's really so critical. And that does seem to be ignored in research in different, um, not just in your field, but in other fields, at these multiple levels yeah. that affect individual choices and decisions. It does. I think a lot of times people assume that it, the reason people don't eat better is because they don't know. And it's pretty clear that parents know most parents know. Um, they just may be challenged in how to get that healthy food on the table. And I think for, for low-income parents, an additional challenge is they can't afford to waste anything. Um, so if they know that their children won't eat something, they don't buy it because um, they can't afford, they don't have enough extra money to afford to waste or throw, throw food away, so they don't. So they tend to make the safer choices, and they tend not to um, try new things as, as easily. Right. As someone who threw out plastic containers of unrecognizable vegetables during my children's lives, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, you know, now let me come with maybe a last question. Again, it's kind of a blue sky question, but if you were to think about your research and someone gave you the power to really translate it, uh, so to have one, one major change that might take place either in individuals or society, um, is there something that you could point to, and why would that be? What's a change you'd like to see occur? Well, I think the policy changes that I think would make it easier for parents to deal um, with these kinds of challenges would be changes related to work and childcare. You know, having dependable, high-quality childcare available, being able to have um, dependable job hours, and and know what your schedule is going to be, and have some flexibility um, if a child is sick, uh, things like that. We, people with higher wage jobs tend to take those kinds of things for granted, and low-wage workers rarely have those options. And I think, it, you know, we'd all like um, people to have, you know, better paid jobs and all those kinds of things, but I think we also need jobs, that people also need jobs that are uh, both more dependable and more flexible. Yeah, I think, you know, I was just thinking that a vast number of low-income parents, and especially women, work in the healthcare field in one way or another. And for the millions who are working in things like home care, uh, there are almost no full-time jobs. There aren't full-time, 40-hour-a-week predictable jobs, and the same is true in fast food and other industries. Mm -hmm. That's right, and then people are putting, having forced to put together more than one job. So then we ask them, well, are, are you working? And they say, well, I, you know, on Monday through Friday I work here, I have part work part-time in this store, and then on the weekends I do this other thing, or I work the night shift because my partner is working days and then we don't have to pay for childcare. So I think there are a lot of challenges in juggling that kind of work. Alrighty, well thanks, and that's, uh, that takes us more or less to our end. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you. Well thanks, it's been, it's been a pleasure having you, and we hope our listeners will join us for our next podcast in this series.
For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.